come before you, Lord, with our ears open to hear and our eyes open to see and our hearts waiting and expectant. We pray that you would make, again, Father, your word live to us. And may we live to this book. Father, I pray for the wherewithal, the, the strength, the focus to move all the way through this study tonight. I know there's much here to see and know and understand. I know, Father, we're not going to plumb all these depths. But those that you allow us to see tonight, God, just fill us up. May we be amazed, but more so, Father, may we be touched and changed. Thank you, Holy Father, for the precious gift that we have before us in your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to jump right in, so if you need a Bible, grab one. Leviticus chapter 4 tonight. Leviticus 4. I tried so hard in my study and preparation to get all the way through chapter 7, and it just didn't happen. But we're going to press forward as far as we can tonight. See what we can what we can accomplish in the time we have before us. I'm banking on the fact that it's still summertime, and so <laughs> you know, Cheryl and I were, were driving back from uh, Taekwondo tonight. Hayden's in Taekwondo, and, and as we were coming back, I, I, we were having this discussion about worship and the Word. And on Wednesday nights, especially, Cheryl was saying, "Well, we could do. I could use more worship," and I was saying, "Yeah, me too." But then. Then there's less time for the Word, and I, and I, I want to respect people's time and get them out of here by 8.30-ish. <laughs> I know it's a big-ish, but still, we try and respect that, and yet, honestly, I could go from 7 to 10 every Wednesday night. It wouldn't bother me a bit. Um, but it is still summer, and I'm not saying we're going to go till 10 tonight, so don't freak out on me. But we're going to drive through some more of Leviticus. I want you to see the last couple of offerings that are talked about as this book opens up. Now, Sunday... Sunday we talked about the blood, the blood, and how these offerings were so bloody and how interesting it is that God, who even recognizing all the blood in paganism, still ordained that his people have blood sacrifices. Why is that? Well, to understand that, you don't only have to go forward to the cross and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, but you have to go back. Back before the sacrifices were ordained. Back before Abraham first sacrificed to the Lord. Back even to before Cain and Abel brought sacrifices. You may remember Abel in Genesis chapter 4 brought a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord of the first of his flock. They had an understanding to some degree of sacrifice even then. God had obviously taught these two boys and their mom and dad about sacrifice and its importance. But you have to go back further than that to understand the blood. To the very days of creation, the sixth day specifically, when God created man and he breathed life into him and then he, he formed him out of the dust of the ground and he made a decision. He made a decision. Now you won't see this written uh, explicitly in scripture but it's implicit in our very creation. God decided that blood would course through our veins. 
God chose in creation to create blood and to make it the very source of our life that without it we couldn't survive, we couldn't live. We have to have blood in us. God did that on purpose, knowing at the point of creation that on the cross... That blood would be fully manifested when it completely drained out of Jesus every drop. That we might understand something amazing. It's the old saying, he would really rather die than live without you. And as Joe said a few minutes ago before we started, he said, you know what's most amazing to me is I, I continue to realize that if I was the only person on the, on the face of the planet, he would still die for me. And gang, that's every one of you. That's me. That, that's maybe the, the phenomenal phrase is that it's, it's me. That's me that, that Jesus died for. Not just this generic mass of humanity. But he spilled his blood for me. And so the blood is so important. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It all drives to Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So if Jesus is it, if He is the only way to the Father, as He claimed, then the blood, the blood is of incredible significance. And so we open up these pages of Leviticus. Now, if you missed last week, and I realize our high school students took off a little early last week, let me give you a quick overview. It's just what the first three offerings tell us about Christ. There are five offerings as we start out in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Five of them, and the first three that we talked about last week are, number one, the burnt offering. The burnt offering, which was a cameo of Christ. How is it a cameo of Christ? The burnt offering shows us the dedication of Christ. Now again tonight I don't have time to go back into what that dedication looks like but in the burnt offering there are so many nuances and pictures of how Jesus was dedicated of how he bore the wood of the cross as the animal sacrifice would be placed on the wood of the altar of how he went through the fire of judgment as the animal would be burned on the altar the burnt offering, the dedication of Christ that's the first cameo of Christ that we see the second cameo is the grain offering the grain offering. It's the only offering that doesn't require blood as the, as the offerer would bring grain, a pure sifted grain, to offer up to God. Or unleavened cakes that had been either made in the pan or the griddle and those unleavened cakes spread over, you may recall, with oil. They're a picture of the perfection of Christ. Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. And the flour being fine, the cakes being unleavened, it's a picture of Christ's perfection. By the way, it reminds us that the only one whose blood was worthy to be shed for us on the cross was Jesus. No other man could have done that. If another man had died on the cross, we'd say, ah, but he's flawed. He's got problems with his blood. If it was an angel that died on the cross, we'd say, that doesn't make any sense. They're nothing like us. And even if it was an animal, as these animal sacrifices were given, we talked about Sunday, there's an equivalency problem. No animal is equal to a human being. But Christ was perfect. The grain offering, the second cameo. The third cameo was the peace offering. And this one was really cool because it was an offering that the offerer shared with the Lord. 
When you brought that animal, that offering, you gave some of it that was given to the Lord, the fat portions and the lobe of the liver and the kidneys, the gross stuff that you wouldn't really want anyway, the bad stuff. God says, I'll take the bad stuff and you take the good stuff and let's eat together. Let's have supper together. Jesus said in the book of Revelation chapter 3, He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone will answer me, I'll come in and we will dine together. We'll have a feast together, the peace offering. It's a picture of the satisfaction of Christ. Satisfaction. Well, that brings us up to cameo number four tonight, beginning in chapter four, in verse one. Cameo number four, we're going to look at the sin offering. We've seen the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and now the sin offering, incredibly important. For this is the offering that would be given, especially on that specific day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This was the atoning offering. We'll see in just a moment. But if you're jotting these things down, after seeing the dedication, the perfection, the satisfaction of Christ, we now come to number four. This cameo shows us the expiation of Christ. Expiation? Yeah, we'll explain that word in just a minute. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally, I like that. That covers a lot of ground for me. If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins, so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord and he shall, he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Get this down, it's important because the next offering that follows it could be confused with it. The sin offering specifically relates to unintentional sin. The sin offering specifically deals with sin that is even beyond us. It deals with the sin nature. It deals with sin committed in ignorance. I was in Honduras. I made a few trips down there, mission trips with, with groups of students when I was doing youth ministry. And on the second of these trips, or the third, second or third trip, maybe the third one, I had an adult leader with me there. His name was Chris Noe. Now, Chris was a really good guy. He was kind of our camera guy for the trip. He brought his camera and he had it all there and then he just messed with that thing all the time. And one afternoon, we were sitting in the rancho in central Honduras. And if you've ever been to Honduras or a, a different country, especially a third world country, in this case, Central America, you know that there's some pretty extreme differences, especially in the insect population. <laughs> there are some bugs there that would just freak you out. I mean, beetles that were that big. And of course, we're just in this open air rancho, so they help themselves to our snacks and stuff. We kept that stuff off the floor. Well, one day, Chris is sitting on the bed and he's messing with his camera and he's really focused on this camera and trying to get it to work. I don't know what he was doing and I was sitting over on the other bed and, um, and I saw him brush something off his knee. And I looked over and looked down on the ground and there was a huge scorpion that had been on his leg. Sitting there on his leg, perched, ready to strike and Chris didn't even know what it was. He just looked at the camera and he just kind of went... <laughs> and I said, Chris, you just knocked a scorpion off your leg. And he was like, Wah! You know, he's up on the bed going, Get it, get it, kill it, kill it, kill it. And I'm going, I won't tell anybody that you're not macho. It's okay. And we got a little tough and got that thing out of there. A scorpion. I'd never seen one in person before. 
I didn't sleep well the rest of the trip. And you know what was great? Everybody knew that we had gotten in, the, in, in this little cup and took it outside and, and, and got rid of it. Well, a couple nights later, we w- walked over to the girls' dorm and, and opened the door and said, We caught another one! And they were like, Really? And I was like, Yeah, oh! And I there was nothing in the cup that time it's kind of fun but I, I completely remember that story the scorpion story and how you know it, I didn't even see it there until he knocked it off but had I seen it there on his leg I would have said immediately Chris don't move hold still unless I didn't like him in which case I'd just sit there and watch and see what happened you know is it going to strike this could be interesting I wonder if they have a hospital close by I tell you this story because I read a quote today Andrew Bonar, who wrote the commentary on Leviticus, and this is a great commentary. I, you know, you guys are going to think I'm a freak. I never would have read books written so long ago if not for their connection to Scripture. And Andrew Bonar wrote this book in 1846, and I'm loving it. Even the, the stilted words, I kind of get through those and go, oh, that's really cool. And I've got several quotes from Bonar tonight. And as a matter of fact, some things I'll probably say that aren't quotes that sound really pithy and intelligent. It's because it's, it's Andrew Bonar and not me. But he says this, and I quote. He says, we're a scorpion on my brow, prepared to thrust in its deadly sting. While I was unconscious of any danger, surely a friend would deserve thanks who saw the scorpion there and cried aloud to me to sweep it off. Surely indeed. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Surely a friend would, in, would deserve thanks. I think he'd deserve a whole lot more than that. But he says, such is the sin of ignorance. And God, who is the God of all knowledge, is the gracious, the gracious friend. Who sweeps the scorpion of sin off of us. Well, we don't even know it's there. We don't even recognize it on the knee or on the brow. But God says, you know, it's there. You may not feel it. You may be completely unaware of it. But it's there. There is sin in your life that you don't even know you're committing. Lord, then what hope have I? I'm going to take care of that. The Lord says to Israel, I'm going to give you a sin offering to deal with unintentional sin. Is God great or what? Psalm 19 verse 12, David said, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. David is keying into this. He's realizing, man, who knows everything that you could possibly have ever done wrong? Who is aware of every sin in your life? The nooks and crannies, those places that we don't even think about. Those offenses against other people that we're completely unaware of. And he prays, God, acquit me of those hidden things, the secret sins. Now, in the sin offering, twice as many verses are dedicated to this offering as to the other, the other five. It's about 17, 18, 19 verses per offering, except for this one, which has 35 verses dedicated specifically to the sin offering. It's that important to the Lord. And it shares some similarities with the burnt offering before it, but it's entirely unique as an offering to the Lord. Let me give you a few differences. The burnt offering was voluntary. You didn't have to bring it. You could bring it, and there was a way to bring it. But the sin offering was commanded. No choice. You bring this offering. The burnt offering meets the demands of God's holiness, while the sin offering meets the desperation of man's sinfulness. The burnt offering went up in smoke from the altar. The sin offering was poured out in blood. The burnt offering tells us who Christ is. The sin offering tells us what Christ did. The sin offering. Again, it deals deals with my uh, sin nature, my propensity to sin. I mentioned something about this last week, but again, understanding our nature is critical. 
I had a humanities class in high school, one of the best classes I ever took, and I still remember a lot of the things that we debated and talked about. And in the philosophy part of that class, one of the papers we had to write was on absolute versus relative truth. And a section of that paper had to deal with the nature of man. Is man good? Is man evil inherently? Or is man, you know, could he just kind of go either way? I was a fence writer at that point. I thought, I can go either way. Because I saw, you know, evil people in the world, but I also saw good. It's not until I've been studying and studying the scriptures for all these many years that I've realized the reality is God tells us man's nature is inherently evil. We are inherently Sinful. Well, that's kind of pessimistic, Rick. Well, then God's a pessimist because Genesis 8, verse 20, He says, His words, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's your nature, folks. That's my nature. We are inherently evil. If left to our own devices, we will sin. Knowingly and unknowingly, we will sin. And what's interesting to me, you hear hear the phrase, a cantankerous old man. You hear about grouchy, uh, grouchy old person. I've noticed something in our world that those who mature in Christ, both spiritually and physically, those who are older in Jesus, 75, 80, 90 year old people who are in Christ are the sweetest people in the world to be around. There's no one else I'd rather to hang with than someone who is elderly and in Christ because they have been with him for so long. He just kind of drips off of them. There's no one in the world I'd rather avoid than an 80 or 90 year old person who does not know Christ. Because there's a tendency just to get worse and worse and worse. We are inherently evil. Paul delineated this, Romans chapter 7 verse 18. He said, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it. But listen, sin which dwells in me. The sin nature. We all have it. God understands that. And you see, try as we might, you and I are still going to miss it. Even if we had the capability to eradicate all the failures, all of the sins that we're aware of in our lives, there are still so many that we don't even know we're committing. And yet we are. It's the sin nature. Again, God is wonderful. He comes along with this offering. This offering for Israel to help them deal with that sin nature. Now, you might say it doesn't seem quite fair, this offering, that God requires me to pay for something I didn't even know that I did wrong. You ever, I don't know, maybe run a stop sign. You didn't really, you weren't even thinking. You're off somewhere else. You slowed down. You did kind of what they call the California rolling stop. And you just slowed down and kept on going. And the police officer pulls you over. And as you sit there on the side of the road and he's writing out that ticket, you're going, that's not fair. I didn't know. I didn't mean to commit anything wrong. I didn't mean to violate the stop sign. I didn't even know I was doing it. And he's writing me a $200 ticket. No, this didn't just happen to me. But it's frustrating. It has happened to me in the past. You think, I I don't deserve this. Why do I have to pay for something I don't even know that I did? It's not fair. Well, let's talk about fairness. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. How is that fair? How is it fair that God said, you're going to sin and not know it, but guess what? I'm going to take that sin on myself. I'm going to die for you. Even for those things you did that you didn't even know you were doing, those sins, I'm going to cover that too. How 
is that possibly fair? And you might even say, well, then why should there have to be a payment at all for any of these things that we do that we don't know that we do? Why should I have to? Why should Jesus have to pay for those things? Can't God just sweep it under the rug? No. Because as you know, God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Would you flip over to 1 John in the New Testament? Some verses that we, I, I realize, tend to occasion frequently. I think it's because they are so important to our understanding of Christ's love and sacrifice. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Let me read this to you. Follow along as soon as you get there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The fringe benefit. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin, from all sin, known and unknown. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. By the way, I've also noticed that the older people get, the less likely they're going to say that they don't sin. It's just a maturity thing. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. Keep your finger there. That's the bad news. Bad news is, it doesn't matter if you think you've sinned or not. You have, and you continue to, and you will. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. The Lord says, you're going to sin. You're not going to know about it. So Israel, here's an offering to cover you. But as we talked about on Sunday, Jesus does far more than just cover us. Far more than just atone for Remember we talked about the whole makeup thing and the cover-up and that beneath the cover-up there's still that, that pimple there, there's still that zip, there's still that, that blemish that I can't get rid of. Oh, I can hide it with the cover-up. I can hide the sin with the, with the Day of Atonement. Atone for my sin, cover me, but the sin is still there. Jesus goes way beyond that. First John chapter 2, verse 1, the next verse going on says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but for those of the whole world. The propitiation. And now we get back to that word, Jesus is our expiation. Very similar words. And in fact, the word translated propitiation here, the word is hilosmos. Hilosmos in the Greek that means the expiator. The expiator. What are you saying, Jesus? The expiator means one who puts an end to. See the difference between that and atonement? One who puts an end to, not one who covers my sin, but one who eradicates it, who puts an end to it. He is the expiator. He puts an end to all sin, even the sin that I don't know I'm committing. And Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 tells us, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, every high priest can deal gently with the ignorant, that's me right here, and the misguided, that's also me right here, the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. What does that mean? Again, when Jesus became flesh, 
and dwelt among us and became our high priest. He was a high priest not just from the heavens but also taken from among men. And because Jesus chose to be beset with the weakness of flesh of humanity, He can gently deal with my sin. He understands me. Are you saying that Jesus had the potential to sin? Jesus was perfect. What I'm saying is He understands temptation. He can, he can he feels, He knows what we struggle with in our sin. And He deals gently even with our ignorance of sin. Well, back to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 5. Going on, talking about the sin offering, it says, Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So we're in the Holy of Holies. Verse 7, the priest also shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, now in the holy place. And all the blood of the bull shall be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting outside the holy place. The blood goes everywhere. Sprinkled in the Holy of Holies, dabbed on the horns of the altar of incense, and poured out at the base of the altar of sacrifice. But note also, watch this, the blood in verse 6 was sprinkled how many times before the Lord? Seven times. And in the Bible, seven is the number of what? Completion. Absolutely. Sometimes we say perfection. It's not the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. Everything complete. Everything does, done as it's needed to be done. Seven times. The blood was to be sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. John Corson reminds us that Jesus' blood was sprinkled seven times on the cross. What do you mean seven times? In his two hands. In his two feet. From his head. From his back. And finally from his side where the sword was thrust and the water and the blood poured out. Revealing to us our complete redemption in his death. Seven times the blood of Jesus was offered for us on the cross. Amazing. The expiation of Christ. That removal of sin. His sacrifice was complete. Well, verse 8 going on says, He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering. The fat which covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys just as it's removed from the ox and the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up and smoke on the altar of burnt offerings. So there is smoke going up, but there's blood all around, drained out of the base of the altar, dabbed onto those four horns of the altar of incense and sprinkled seven times in the Holy of Holies. Verse 11, verse 11 going on says, But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now two things happen here with this sin offering. Two things. There are two almost different offerings going on at the same time. And the first is inside the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the tabernacle proper. The, the blood that's poured out there. But there is another offering that takes place outside the camp. All the leftover, all of the, the, the head and the legs and the flesh and the refuse and the entrails, all that is to be gathered up ooh, and carried out to the outside of the camp. And there it is to be burned in a place that is clean where there would be ashes. 
In the same way, Jesus was crucified outside the camp, wasn't he? Away from the temple, away from the Holy of Holies and the holy place in the outer courtyard. It said that when Israel did this, when it was in the tabernacle as they traveled through the desert, that this place outside the camp, it was calculated to be some four miles or so, likely about the distance that Jesus was crucified on the cross outside the camp on Golgotha that place of the skull the real offering of which this sin offering is just a shadow forgiveness forgiveness even for unintentional sin and think about it what is it that Jesus said as he hung on the cross he said many things but one of the most powerful one of the most important Luke chapter 23 verse 34 he said Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing unintentional sin the sin offering they don't even know but this this burning this burning outside the camp portrays something else it it, it points to something it's important of a terrible terrible truth a burning that happens afar off away from the holy place yet visible to the whole congregation of Israel as the smoke would go up outside of the camp it's a picture of an eternal fire Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 talks about those who have rejected God who actually at this point have accepted Antichrist as their Savior and it says this person will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever The angels, the lamps, will see that smoke, will see that burning going on outside of the camp, away from the holiness of God, an eternal burning that goes on forever. Wait a minute. You're talking about hell, aren't you? That's right. Well, you really believe there's a hell? Now, some of you may be stunned for me even to ask that question, but you'd be even more stunned to, to realize that in the church today, among Christians today, there are many who don't believe there's a hell. Let's just clear this one up really quick. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Yeah, I believe there's a hell. The Bible is very clear about a specific location that is called hell, a place of eternal burning. But it's not meant for you. As a matter of fact, it's not meant for any human being. Oh, so people don't go to hell? No, they do. Because if you reject God, there's no other place. But Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 25, verse 10, the eternal fire, he refers to hell, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh wait, so you're saying there's a devil? Yep. Jesus did. And not just some dark, mystical force out there, but a person, an actual being, who is going to go to hell. And he's not going to reign in hell any more than anybody else who's there. He'll be one of... Sorry to say the many. But I remind you again of the scorpion on the forehead. The sin that we are completely unaware of and our friend God who brushes it off even though we don't know it's there. The opportunity for grace that saves us even though we don't recognize the sin in our lives so that we would never even have to fear hell. So that as believers in Christ we can walk with our heads up thankful, confident to come before the throne of grace the Bible tells us. And John wrote in John chapter 20 verse 31, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, listen to this, that by believing you may have life in His name. You don't have to doubt. Last week I mentioned having a conversation with some guys about how do you know you're saved. 
It tells you you're saved. You can know that you're saved. No doubt, no fear, no worry. Is there a hell? Yes. Am I going there? No. (laughs) No fear. I know when Jesus calls, I'm going home. But Rick, on your bad day? Yes, on my bad day. Whatever day. When I'm chasing Reggie up the driveway and throwing rocks and shouting and saying, get back here. And Jesus says, come on, Rick. You do fall, I'm gone. I'm going home. Hell has no hold on me. Well, the rest of chapter 4, the rest of chapter 4 extends the sin offering to four different groups or, or types of people. And we'll just look at these quickly. This is interesting. Verse 3 tells us the first. It's the priest. <laughs> if the anointed priest sins. The anointed priest sins? Oh, you betcha. In fact, we're coming up pretty quick. A couple of weeks or so to view a sin that causes the death of two of Aaron's sons. Yeah, the anointed priest can sin. The elders also. The elders also. Look at verse 13, skipping ahead. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error, that is everyone, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not be done, and they become guilty. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation will lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. The identification process we've talked about, the elders would gather around this bull. The whole camp of Israel is guilty of a sin. And so the elders lay their hands on the bull, identifying their sin with the animal that then is taken for the sin offering and sacrificed. Passing that sin along is the picture that's given here. So the first two of these four types of people that the sin offering is for is the priest and the elders. The priest is dealt with first, for if the priest sins, it impacts the entire nation. If the anointed priest, verse 3, sins so as to bring guilt on the people... That's heavy. That's intense. If the priest sins, the body feels the guilt. And yet if you've been around churches for any amount of time, you know when a pastor falls, what a mess it causes. What damage it does in the body. The elders also, placing their hands on the bull for the sin, taking that responsibility of the sin of all the people. The elders, the pastor. If you're thinking about being a pastor, <laughs> I want to give it a second thought. James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because we should know better. Oh, I know we hate that phrase, especially when you know we were kids and, and your mom or dad said that about your brother or sister. You know, you're, why can't you be more like them? You should know better. You're the older one. You know the rules of the house. Why are you doing this? I understand the little two-year-old doing it, but why you? You should know better. The truth is, the pastor should know better. The truth is, the elders should know better. Because if you're in the Word, if you're teaching the Word, if it's before you, if you're seeing it. Now, unfortunately, in the church today, a lot of pastors are not teaching the Word. And I don't say that as judgment, I say it as truth, and it's, it's, it's a great concern to me. I was teaching at Pacific Christian College, a youth ministry class. One of my favorite discussions with the kids in that class was, should a youth minister look or act or be any different than the teenagers he serves? Or should he look like them? Where's the line? 
And I'd have kids in the class, you know, college kids who had tattoos and they had earrings and they looked a lot like the teenagers they hung out with. And they'd come into class with the, you know, with the Birkenstocks and the shorts. We were in California. This would be like January and they're, they're in shorts. You know, by the way, how you can tell if it's uh, winter in California because everybody wears their dark colored shorts. So they're all there. They're, they're looking totally beached out. And I'd say, how much like the teens that you work with should you be? Because, I mean, look at me. <laughs> I was a youth pastor at the time, and I didn't look a whole lot different than I do right now. And of course, I had the glasses on, so I was kind of a dorky-looking guy working with teenagers with no earring, no tattoos. They loved me. <laughs> but I talked I talk to these kids about, well, how should you be? And there was one, I'll never forget this conversation I had with one kid about drinking, literally. He said, I, I just don't think it's fair that all this be put on a pastor. Youth pastor or otherwise, we are just members of the body of Christ like everybody else. Why can't I go out and have a beer? You can. So Paul said, you have, you have that right, you have that freedom. You have the freedom to, to do these things. But, do you want to? Should you be more? And there was this big conversation. This went on at our church back and forth among the pastors. How much do we relax in our freedom in Christ versus try to live up to the standards of Scripture? If we live up to the standards of Scripture, are are people going to come to talk to us? Or are they going to feel like, oh, I can't be like that person. He's way up there. He's too good. He wouldn't understand my sin. Well, maybe then we should sin a little more so people go, oh yeah, he totally relates. I saw him bombed off his keister last weekend so he knows what I'm going through. <laughs> and I'll never forget what Floyd Strader, my senior pastor, said. Precious man, 71 years old when he told me this. He said, Rick, I understand all this thing, all the stuff that comes to go. I've, I've had all these conversations with pastors over the years talking about how it should be more like the people. And he said, I've tried hard to, to be like Jesus my whole life. And Floyd was. This was a man who, if anybody was in that place of not sinning intentionally, maybe he had some of those unintentionals that no one knew about and he didn't even know, but this man was about as close to righteous as I've ever seen. And Floyd said, I'll tell you what, Rick. When a marriage is in crisis, they come to me. Or when a person is broken because of sin, they come to me. They're not afraid of me just because I'm trying to live like Jesus. It's because I live like Jesus that they do come to me. Pastors and elders, and I guess I'm speaking to us, have a great responsibility. A huge responsibility. doesn't mean that they are better than either. Please. Because guess what? The first person who needs a sin offering is the priest. He's the first one mentioned. God made sure he was covered because he needed to be covered. Don't ever forget that about your pastor and your elders. They need, they need the blood of Jesus, just like everybody else. But they have a responsibility. That's why Paul stringently impressed upon young Pastor Timothy the importance of rightly handling the word of truth. Of being so in the book and so aware of the things of God that he can present them rightly to the people and himself be protected. Flee immorality, Paul said to Timothy. Stick to the word. Teach the word, Timothy. And you will do well. The priests and the elders impact the nation, the people. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. I have been given so much at this church. I can't, I can't even tell you. 
I'm not going to get all sappy with you here. But it blows my mind. I still don't understand why a single person walks in the door, except for the grace of Christ that's definitely here and His Holy Spirit at work. But for someone who's been given much, much will be required. And so on a personal note, I ask that you pray for your elders. I ask that you pray for me, that we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus said, A blind man cannot lead or guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? (laughs) Just imagine that. The whole bridge is going into a pit. We don't want that. A pupil, he said, and this is a frightening phrase for me, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) So always pray, whether it's in this church or any other, always pray for your teachers, always pray for your pastors, always pray for your elders. And again, don't forget, we all need the sin offering of Jesus, our expiator to remove the sin that is within us. There are also two other types of people who are mentioned here and the offering is slightly different for them. Look at verse 22. We're going to skip down. The rest of it as we skip things are are restatements of how this offering is offered. And so in verse 22 it tells us when a leader sins, now in some translations it says a ruler. We're talking really about a, a, a social ruler, a civic ruler, a politician. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any one of all the things which the Lord his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, which I think is completely appropriate for politicians. (laughs) And we can get into that, we won't tonight, but a male without defect, bring a goat, you civic leaders, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. And then the priest is to take, now watch this, some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the altar of the, on the horns of the altar of burnt offering not the altar of incense so this is still a sin offering but for the civic leader the offering is made right there at the altar of burnt offering which you may recall is not inside the tabernacle it's in the outer courtyard it's not in the holy place it's not in the holy of holies it's out there in the, in the main courtyard where everybody can see and all its fat he shall offer up and smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. So the ruler or the politician who leads in non-spiritual matters also has a sacrifice, but that sacrifice doesn't go into the holy place. Why? Because the politician doesn't go into the holy place. He doesn't. His job is to lead civically, politically, to lead in on the world stage or, or, or in the country or for the county or for the city. It's not a spiritual job. And so the offering is not before the Lord and the Holy of Holies. The offering is right out there for the people to see. He has sinned and there is forgiveness. But the people need to understand that his sin is against the people. Whereas the priests and the elders and the sin of the congregation would be a sin against the Lord. Well, the politician is a sin against the people. So, uh, the ruler, the politician, the next one is the common Israelite, just your average Joseph. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, Now, if anyone of the common people sins unintentionally, and that word unintentionally keeps coming up with the sin offering, anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and becomes guilty of his sin which he has committed, is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering also a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. Whoa, hang on a second. There's another variation. 
And the priests and the elders, they bring a bull, a male without defect. The, the politician, the, the ruler, the leader, he, he brings a goat, a male without defect. But the common Israelite brings a goat, a female without defect. Well, that's interesting. What's the deal? Like the ruler's offering, the blood sprinkled in the more public altar, but this goat for this offering is female. Why? I'm just going to give you an opinion. I think maybe God is intending for Israel to understand that forgiveness was equally available to the daughters as well as the sons. So bring a female for this offering. And understand that the sin offering doesn't just extend to the macho men among you, but to the daughters as well. We certainly know that the revolution, the revolution that took place when Jesus came to the earth in his relationship with women, after all, the first person to hear from Jesus that he was the Messiah was not one of the apostles, not one of the Jewish leaders, not a Pharisee, not a priest, it was a woman, and even less a Samaritan woman. She's the first that he said, hey, I'm him, I'm the guy. And Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I can go all the way back to Adam and Eve and the curse on women and the curse on men and how that all works out, but I'm telling you right now, in the church, in Christ, there is not male and female. There are roles. There are specific things God has called us to. God does say very specifically that an elder is to be a husband of one wife and I've never yet known a woman who could be a husband. So there is a male role there. We see that with teaching in different aspects. Again, I'm going to get myself in trouble and go down a path that will keep us here until midnight, but though there are different roles, equality-wise there is no difference between a woman and a man who are in Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters together. We are family, and there is no distinction, which is good news, I think, for all of us. Now, some of your Bibles may give a heading above chapter 5. We're going to skip down to there, chapter 5. You're thinking, well, Rick, you're skipping stuff. No, I'm not. Everything that we're moving beyond has been explained in this chapter already. It's just restated and restated as we go. So chapter 5, verse 1. Um, before we get to that, do some of you have the heading above that that says the law of guilt offerings in your Bibles? Okay. That's not really uh, accurate. We're not quite there yet. The law of guilt offerings actually isn't going to kick in until verse 14 of chapter 5. Verse 1, still we're dealing with the sin offering. Now we're starting to segue a little bit. We're going to begin talking about guilt, but we're not there yet. We're still talking about the sin offering, and I believe I can show you why that's the case. Beginning in verse 1, let's read. Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. This is just knowing, but not speaking the truth. Specifically on the witness stand. You know the truth, but you hide it, or avoid it, or don't share it. You're guilty. Verse 2, if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of a clean, unclean cattle, or a carcass of, an unclean, of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him, and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. And otherwise, you, you could accidentally touch something unclean, not even know it, and you're guilty. Going on. Verse 3, if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be with which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him then he come, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. So you're just taking out the laundry. You had no idea what was really in there. 
But you touched it, guilty, unclean. Verse 4, if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, either way, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. I promise I will get my room clean before you come home, Dad. And it doesn't happen. Guilty. That's not applied to you, Corey. Don't worry about it, son. You're doing great. Verse 6. He shall off also... Oh, verse 5. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Verse 6. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. Now, right here, this is the nuance. Watch this in verse 6. He says he shall bring his guilt offering for his sin. Okay, what God is saying here is you're going to bring a guilt offering because you're guilty of sin, but we're still going to talk about the sin offering. We'll get to the guilt offering in just a second, but you understand when you sin and you become aware of it, not only do you bring the sin offering, but you bring the guilt offering as well. Two offerings. God will bring them both. Okay? Now we know that we're still talking about the sin offering because of the second half of the verse. He says, You are to bring a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering, so the priest shall make atonement on behalf for his sin. Uh, we're talking about a, a, a lamb from the flock or a goat. Well, that's not the guilt offering. The guilt offering is a different animal altogether, and we'll get that in a second. We're still talking about the sin offering. Now, it's interesting. If you read through these first five verses or so, God decides to delineate some sin that I don't think I would have chosen. I think I would have said something like, you know, if the husband beats his wife, and that's a big obvious one, let's get that one out there right, right up front. Big sin. If a man comes home drunk, if a woman messes around on her husband, I mean, let's get some of the big serious sins out there. If someone lies under oath, I can see that being pretty serious, but a lie is, you accidentally touch something that's unclean, and you're guilty. Why does God mention these things? Again, this is my opinion. I'll, I'll throw it out there, kind of in the for what it's worth category, but I've discovered that all of these have to do with the art of compromise. They're not those big, bad, horrible, blatant sins. Those immediate choices to rebellious action. They're compromise. They're little steps in the arena of sin. Sin rarely begins with a big leap into the abyss. Most of us don't say, Today I'm going to rob a bank. You know, very few kids go to college hoping to get a major in drug abuse. You know, it's slow. It's insidious. It's a tiny little step at a time until it's, it's the frog in the kettle. The water gets warmer and warmer until we're just basking in the sin and aren't even aware of what's going on. And that's the type of sins we're talking about. Compromising the truth. I didn't really lie. It was just a little white lie. I mean, it's kind of just a little compromise there. Or if we fail to keep our word. Well, I know I promised. I'll, I'll do that later. I'll, I'll get back to it. Or... Or if we make promises thoughtlessly, or if we just touch things that we probably shouldn't be touching, but we're not really engaging in the process, rated our movies, we're just, you know, not doing what's on the screen, I'm just watching. You know, it's not a big deal, is it? Or if we're even in a place where this kind of thing can inadvertently take place, I just happen to be where the unclean things are, with no intention to touch or have contact with any of them. Gang, if we do these things, we will be guilty. Hayden, 
and his friend Devin were hanging out at Devin's house and they were playing and they were having a great time over there. I, this is uh, Myrna Beasley's house. And she, I mean, this is a veritable wonderland over there. She's got a big old pool and they've got a big trampoline and all kinds of things. And just, it's a great place. They've got a tent that's up 24-7 and they have campfires and stuff, whatever they want. So Hayden's been over there playing a lot. Well, this one afternoon, the pool that they had been swimming in had busted the day before. Apparently, Richard Beasley... Well, he probably doesn't want me to tell you that he drove his tractor into the side of the pool, so I won't tell you about that. But it, it created a tear in the pool, and it had to be patched. All the water came out. Well, Myrna patched it the morning that Hayden came over. So the pool is patched. It's ready to go. They fill it up with water. I mean, I don't know, 35,000 gallons of water in this thing. Big old honking pool. And the patch is there, and it's working great. And Hayden and Devin are standing in front of the pool waiting for Myrna as she went out to the mailbox to come back, and then they were going to go swimming. Well, Devin is, is standing there by the pool and they're looking at the patch. And I'm not sure, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure that he wouldn't admit it even if it was the case, but I think he touched the patch. Because as the story goes after the fact, that pool burst open. There was a torrent of all these gallons of water and it caught up Hayden and Devin and they went for the ride of their lives. <laughs> 50 feet. Hayden rode that wave. You know, and Devin was head over head, blah, 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 and they were fine. I mean, you know, Myrna came running up. She said, "I heard this gush, this sound that you know we had a house that was flooded one time, and it was that same sound." I thought, "Well, that's weird." You know, she's walking up from the, and then here comes the water, and there go the boys. You know, and all all Devin did was just touch it, or even if he hadn't touched it, they were just there. Torrents by association, you see. They were just kind of present with the thing. And God is saying, you know what? Stay back from sin or get ready for the deluge. Because even if you're close, you may not be desiring to commit it or even thinking you're involved in it. But boom, it will break on you like a flood. And everyone will be caught up. Eventually, even if it's unintentionally. The art of compromise. Well, it's interesting. It goes on in the Bible. Verse 7 tells us, If he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned. Again, this is the sin offering we're talking about. And, and I, I could get into the language, I won't, but it's still the sin offering. And two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Okay. He shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering, and shall nip its head in the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. In the same way, it's interesting that none of the bones of Jesus were broken on the cross, neither is the bird in this offering severed. There's so many little things in here. Again, we could be here all night. Verse 9 tells us, He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second, he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. Good news. But, verse 11 tells us, but if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves and two young pigeons, then for his sin, for his offering that, for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it, this flour, add this memorial portion, and offer it up in smoke on the altar with the offerings of the Lord by fire. It is a sin 
offering, verse 13, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin which he has committed from one of these. It will be given him, and then the rest of this offering will become the priests, just like the grain offering. Notice that no one gets off the hook here. Nobody gets to slide by. If you can't afford a lamb or a goat, bring birds. If you can't afford the birds, bring flour. But everyone must be atoned for whether you think you can afford it or not. And the truth is, none of us can really afford atonement, can we? I can bring a goat or a lamb or two turtle doves or a pigeon. I can bring a handful of flour, but it will not ultimately atone for my sin. But it's interesting here. Verse 11, I think, gives us a little clue, a snapshot, a picture, a poignant description of Jesus during his crucifixion. What do you mean? Watch this. Verse 11. Watch it closely. If his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering, this is that sin offering for which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. What is oil a picture of in the Bible? What is that? The Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit. What uh, is incense a picture of in the Bible? Prayer. And specifically, if you look at incense that rises up before the Lord, talked about especially in Revelation, it is prayer that is heard. Prayer that is answered. Prayer that God responds to. And yet right here in this sin offering, we have a picture of this fine flour. No leaven in it, this perfect flour. And yet, no Holy Spirit, no oil... And prayers that go unanswered. Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross. Jesus was distanced from God's Spirit on the cross. And that moment cut off from the Father. His prayers falling flat and unanswered as He cried out, Matthew 27, 46, My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? No Holy Spirit present with Jesus to comfort Him to strengthen him and the prayers unheard in the darkness the Holy Spirit could not be present with Jesus on the cross with all that sin that Jesus bore and his prayers could not be answered and this I think was the most painful moment or the most painful reality in the whole crucifixion even more painful than every individual sin that you and I pour onto him in the crucifixion more painful than that was the fact that Jesus was cut off. It would be the only time in all eternity that Son would be out of touch with Spirit and Father. The only time. And I think for Jesus, it drove Him even to say, My God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Daniel said exactly as much would happen, didn't he? Those of you who know this verse, Daniel 9.26, Daniel, it was prophesied the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 